Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, it's time for the Medical Association of Georgia's Top Docs Radio Show, which is made possible with a grant from Healthcare Research, a subsidiary of Alliant Health Solutions. Visit mag.org and follow MAG on Twitter and Facebook at MAG1849 to find out why MAG is recognized as a leading advocate for physicians in Georgia. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for joining us for today's Top Docs Radio Show. As we do, we have the Medical Association of Georgia with us in the studio today, and we'll be talking about something that I know is very important to many of our listeners, since uh, a good number of them are members of the Medical Association of Georgia themselves, practicing physicians around the state of Georgia. And over time that we've been doing the show, we've talked on a number of occasions about various aspects of the way reimbursement is flowing now when you're dealing with CMS and uh, Medicare-type patients when they're coming through your practice. One of the things uh, that we've talked about is value-based medicine and getting reimbursed against how you are hitting certain patient outcomes and targets, both in cost of delivery of care that they receive as as well as, you know, are they getting better? Is their trend line improving? Uh, those types of factors, when they are well-documented around the work that a physician is doing, uh, very often means that that physician will then, on a, on a later reimbursement year, get what can be a pretty significant bump in their rate of reimbursement over where they were. Uh, and today, we've got an expert on the subject, a practicing physician as well, uh, and, and an individual who spends a lot of his time helping colleagues learn more about how they can be documenting the care they're already giving every day in their office and be getting the reimbursement credit for it, if you will, when it comes time for that uh, on the backside. Dr. Ronnie Smith is an internist with Vidalia Medical Associates, and he's practiced medicine for nearly 40 years, obtained his medical degree from Medical College of Georgia, as many of my guests have, have come from, graduated from the Executive Medical Management Program at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And as I mentioned, he's an expert in outpatient and inpatient risk adjustment documentation and coding. And that's an important uh, focus of what we'll be talking about today. As we talked before we went on the air today, it's clear it's something that he's very passionate about Sounds like he learned along the way through some hard knocks as well and saw both his reimbursement and obviously his patient outcomes with that improving the better he got at taking a close look at making sure that he was documenting the, the severity and the extent of the illnesses that his patients were facing. So, Dr. Smith, I really appreciate you jumping in the studio today and sharing some information with our colleagues out there. It's my pleasure, and that was an absolute fantastic intro. I loved how you worded uh, leading into our topic today. Well, for our guests, introduce them to a little bit about your background and, and how this has taken shape such that you've not only been able to, obviously, through self-education, be able to ensure that you're documenting everything about your patients that you, you should be, uh, but how it's impacted both your patients that you're caring for as well as your practice as a business, because that is what we are in here. We're in the business of healthcare. Um, so that's a reality. Uh, but based on what we were talking about, you, you've really seen the water lifting all the boats, if you will. It does. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying that we're going to be talking about coding and documentation and risk adjustment as a way of increasing uh, reimbursement. But I think the biggest key we need to understand is that it stimulates 
quality in healthcare. It makes us look at our outcomes, both financial and quality. Uh, risk adjustment affects your quality outcomes. I think um, many physicians don't realize uh, how it impacts the quality. For example, just uh, with certain risk adjustment, if you have uh, a patient with a risk score of two and risk score of one, which is normal, and you have a death in each one of those groups, the physician with the high risk score will have the lowest mortality rate. I understand, and This yes. is an old Medicare thing, but that's right. sort of how it affects yes. our uh, quality measures. So it's really important that we get it right. So what we need to do as clinicians is through our clinical decision-making, CW, not through our coding, it starts with the clinical decision-making of the physician to understand the patient, understand the risk adjustment factors called RAFs, R-A-F. RAFs is, is important that we got to recognize those. In Medicare, there is over 71,000 I-10s, or, but only 12.4 risk adjusts, 12.4%. So that's 8,830 codes that risk adjust. And most of those physicians don't really understand why they would risk adjust. Let me see if I understand when, you, when you're talking about it that way. Okay. Many, many codes. I know that one of the things that the ICD-10 codes were intended to do was to allow more granular reporting. Yes, get very specific about, uh, for example, the practice that I came from um, was in wound care and, you know, it, it went to even more specificity with how we were able to document where the extent of a wound, uh, you know, all of that kind of things that really can come into play. And, and those things were very important with regards to being able to justify why you're making the decisions that you're making. When you look at that patient and you know, based on what you see and their assessment that the choices you should make, but the payer on the other end may not agree with you if you don't get those codes right. So there's the fine granularity of the ICD-10 codes, but when you talk about being able to risk adjust a certain set of those, my impression is that each of those particular 12% of coded diseases and challenges that you're facing have varying degrees of severity varying degrees of extent of manifestation and their impacts on the patient's quality of life, their ability to, you know, care for themselves, et cetera, and such that the better you document that, then more you can potentially be supported to do for them. Am I exactly. on the right track? Okay. And it's in the documentation. I like you saying that. It's not in the coding. The coding obviously determines the risk adjustment. But the clinical decision-making and the documentation must support that code. So uh, everybody talks about coding. Let's have coders come in and teach yeah. doctors. Yes. No, no, no. we got to have clinicians come in and teach doctors about clinical decision-making and how it impacts risk adjustment. Let me give you a quick takeoff. In those 8,830 codes at risk adjust, there's some that absolutely doesn't make sense. Uh, if you have mild calcification of the aortic arch on a chest X-ray, which is real common in people over 60, that score, that weight is 0.299. But if you have breast cancer or prostate cancer, it's only 0.154. So mild atherosclerosis of the order. Uh, is a much higher, almost double score compared to breast cancer mm. and 
prostate cancer. So, you know, if you've got a patient with prostate cancer and you do a chest X-ray, sometime they got calcification, if you document and code that too, you triple the weight of that patient. So tripling that weight allows, then it's multiplied times a certain uh, conversion number. For Medicare, it's $9,050. So that's how much you would be expected to spend on that patient for the coming year. Now, if you went over that because you overutilized, you're cost inefficient. So you get a bad mark. You also get excluded from some narrow networks because you're not efficient. But if you document it correctly and you code it, you come in under budget because you spent less, then most payers now will uh, have a contractual arrangement with you to give you one-third of those savings. So this is good for the entire nation because overall we're now reducing health care costs and they're not accelerating you know, through the roof. And the... Ones that I'm always getting confused in my mind as we talk about it, MACRA and MIPS and where that all ties into all this conversation. Okay. All right. First of all, let's understand that uh, MACRA and MIPS only affects Medicare Part B. Actually, that's a very limited amount. That's about 60% of Medicare patients. But if you will, like Willie Sutton said, for providers, the money is in Medicare Part C, and we'll discuss that, but I'm going back to MACRA. So you got uh, MACRA and you got two tracks. You got MIPS, uh, which the majority of doctors will be in probably 90%. For 2017, the cost factor was taken out in the scoring. For 2018, the cost will be 10%, and in 2019, it'll be 30%, which is equal to quality. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about this cost. That cost is is risk-adjusted. It's resource-based. So the way that I got my incentive under the QRUR report, and that'll continue to be the same report under MACRA-MIPS for physicians at feedback, and it talks about HCCs. We hadn't discussed that yet, but that's the hierarchical condition category of Medicare. That means you're risk-adjusting. So that determines how much I can spend. So with shared savings programs, uh, with an ACO, that's what shared savings means. You've got to come in under budget. Yes. And we got to understand that what sets the budget is the risk scoring of the patients. Very vital. So if you've got a physician that really don't care about all of this, and he said, ah, I, I don't want to be worried about all that risk-adjusting stuff, he's going to come over as a very uh, cost-inefficient provider, uh, he's going to look bad, especially on physicians compare that website. Medicare is actually going to show all that information. Mm-hmm. So when that, if you look at that today, I look great because I've been a very cost-efficient, high-quality doctor because I met those quality measures, documentation. So y- you got to do it for appearances, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's the new age. Where do you see when you interface with colleagues out there in the community and you're talking to them about this kind of topic, where do you see the disconnect being? Is it because the documentation feels cumbersome and that's why I just, I document on a, you know, relatively, I guess, lower acuity without really thinking about it in that way. Where's the disconnect as to why I wouldn't want to do that? Physicians just don't understand it. 
Uh, under risk adjustment, the best documentation is, is MEAT, M-E-A-T. It's a more simplified way of documenting a condition. Uh, a risk-adjusting condition only has to be documented once a year, preferably twice a year, but at least once a year. It's an easier process. Physicians, I find, you know, there's burnout in physicians, primary care up about 62%. Uh, the biggest cause of burnout is the electronic health record. And in that electronic health record, you got all this scrolling and clicking. Yes. So <laughs> I have an electronic record certified, been doing it for years. I got tired of the clicking. So what I did is I got to uh, subscribe to Medicare's MedPAR database. That's all of their outpatient diagnosis for the entire country. So uh, I did this years ago for hospitals uh, with the case mix index improvement and DRGs. But anyway, we've come to this new place with outpatient risk adjustment. So I took those, uh, the 8,830 codes at risk adjust, and we converted the I-9 codes to I-10 codes, and we ran that in a relational database with regression analysis, meaning uh, how many codes would it take to give me a two standard deviations capture of risk adjustment for primary care? This is internal medicine family practice. It was a eureka moment. It absolutely was because I discovered that 173 I-10 codes accounted for 95.5% of all risk adjustment opportunities for primary care. And then I mixed it up and I ran it for specialists because you can get all this for specialists. 88% of specialty care across the board came back with those same 173 codes because a specialist, no matter what he's treating on you that he specializes in, he's still got to treat you as an overall whole patient right. and know what you've got to risk over. And that's a, an irony to uh, some surgeons because they just want to document their surgery. But if a surgeon documents the patient has a BMI over 40, you got the guy that chronic atrial fibrillation, he gets his score way up there. Does that help him then? Oh, if in, yes. Because yes. that patient is going to be at a higher risk in the global period yes. to come back for a readmission for a wound dehiscence because they're healing poorly. Exactly. So are you saying then that my reimbursement for the surgery, because I'm doing it on a higher risk patient who... We know statistically we'll have this potential outcome I'm covered to some extent to help with that if I do have to bring them back to the OR to close them up or whatever. You've hit the nail on okay. the head. Okay. Okay. You've met surgeons. Uh, you've been in the medical field. They just want to operate and code that surgical code. I got that gallbladder out and it's gone. Yes. That doesn't risk adjust. Surgery does not risk adjust. So you're not reporting to the agency the, the the serious patient you were doing this, what seems to be a simple surgery on. That's right. So if I'm a surgeon, a really smart surgeon, a wise surgeon, I'm going to take out the gallbladder. I'm going to document the diabetes with the manifestation. I'm going to document the morbid obesity, the atrial fibrillation. My patient's going to be a lot sicker than the other surgeon that had the same patient, but he just didn't document right. it. Right. I see. And, and then... What I discovered that 58% of those diagnosis codes I mentioned also serve as complications and comorbid factors or major complications, comorbid factors for inpatients, which raises a hospital's case mix index and they get more money. 
while they're in the hospital, if the doctor knows to document the atherosclerosis of the order, sends it back to the outpatient doctor, he all documents it so everybody's got this cumulative risk score for this patient going on. It's extremely important in an ACO that, that all this data gets collected and yes. reported. I understand. Now, you were talking about the hierarchical condition categories. Can you go into what that means? Yes. Uh, that's that's Medicare. Medicare has one. Uh, HHS has one with Tom Price now. They have one for the entire population, picks up pediatrics. But uh, HCC, there's 79 HCCs. And what they are are payment buckets, 79 payment buckets. So you take these 8,830 diagnoses that we've been talking about and you start putting them in a bucket. And as they go in a bucket, uh, they are associated with a weight, uh, a, a severity weight, a sickness weight. Actually, it's a cost weight, to be blunt with everybody. That's what it really means is the cost weight. So then those add up, those different buckets, you can add up. There are some that excludes others, but in general, they're cumulative. They add up. They're added. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that determines the risk score of the patient. Now, if I'm listening to today's conversation and I'm thinking about my practice and I realize I've probably not been documenting quite as well, as I could be based on what I know to be really sick patients. I, I have a lot of stuff I have to manage on each one of them. How do I go from not documenting this as well as I might be able to, to be doing it on the level that you're talking about? Because as you mentioned, focusing on these things also helps to drive some decisions around those things that could help some stuff off, maybe make their trend lines go in the right direction, which again, sure. further propels everything along. How do I transition over to where I'm closer in the direction where you are, where I understand this better? Well, I think for the average doctor, they've got to become in risk adjustment, better understand it, better apply it. But I'm going to take that as that question were directed at me. Uh, I practice with nurse scribes. Each exam room has a nurse scribe. I am never on a computer keyboard in front of a patient. It's like the lady I talked about earlier that had the cane. I want to look at the patient, connect with the patient. I don't want to let the computer or the keyboard get in the I've way. I've experienced that firsthand. So I, so I, I like that. Yeah. And my nurses have taken this, this tool that we developed. And I have one nurse that has memorized all 273 codes I-10. So when we're in the medical record, we just put that in. We don't have to scroll and look. We, we save a lot of time. It streamlines the workflow. But physicians need to capture those and just enter those in. And we show them how to really document that quickly, that once a year with the meat documentation. Mm -hmm. uh, the prima facie evidence that a RAF condition, a risk adjustment factor exists, is that the physician has to state that it exists, like depression. Number two, you have to put how it's being treated with a status. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Mm -hmm. What's happening to it? And then you've got to have a treatment plan, plan of action. doesn't have to be that complicated. So I think a lot of physicians are, are over-documenting because they don't know what to document. They, they need to get the meat. So that's what Medicare requires in their audits. The red big audits is the meat documentation and all the other fluff that we worked so hard to put in there. <laughs> we're, we're putting some of the wrong stuff in. I understand. Okay. 
Now you said you, you showed me a tool that you developed that I presume that in addition to taking care of patients, it sounds like you spend some time out in physician practices helping them learn some of this. You've developed a tool here that appears, it, it looks like you're calling plays at the Super Bowl. It looks sort of like a play sheet that a coach would use, but it's yeah. it's got, a, as you showed, a pretty logical, intuitive breakdown of that kind of information that really helps me make it go fast. I know it guides my my focus, if you will, around these particular conditions so I can readily tick my memory to keep my keep my thoughts on those. Exactly. And if you forget yours, your care team, your nurses can help remind you that this is what you've got to document and capture. And it sounds like that that was the big thing that I've I've heard from physicians over time as we've talked about a variety of healthcare technologies that you know, maybe they API into the EMR in some form or fashion and add a layer of functionality to it. One of the big things I always hear with physicians around the EMR is workflow and click fatigue and drop, you know, uh, pop-up fatigue and all of those types of things. Uh, It sounds like this is, you've been able to develop a, a particular way to approach the workflow so that you're achieving several things around this all at once. You're documenting in the EMR, obviously, the things that we need to, those finer points that you really want to get uh, into the record. But you're helping do that with an assistant that keeps your eyes and your focus on the patient, which I'm sure from the perspective of a customer satisfaction, a patient satisfaction survey, that's a big that's a big component. Uh, you, you see that all the time. The doctor barely looked at me the whole time it was you know turned away from me when he was talking to me i'm uh, those little things have to really factor in and and as you're talking about it various aspects of these different uh, components can kick in two percent here two percent there that pretty soon you're really starting to see a big difference over where you were before and with these uh, cap surveys that patients now are going to be required to answer all of these was the uh, receptionist uh, rude was she kind was the doctor did he answer my questions did he spend enough time with me we're required to do that going forward on the macromips so we're we're doing that, and uh, we're helping to train our patients, uh, give us the right answers by giving them better service, you know, in responding to them. That's a key component of macromips. When it comes to having you come and help me learn this, what kind of time commitment am I looking at here? What, how do I work that into my into my workflow so I can learn? Do we do we do it during the during my day, we block out some time around that, or do we do it in off hours? How do we accomplish it? I've done it different ways. Uh, in, in two hours, I uh, have a presentation. It's two hours mastering risk adjustment. I can teach a physician how to master risk adjustment in two hours. But then when he leaves, there's a lot of questions about the code. So is he if he has one of these cheat sheets, which I call the quick wrap recognition tool, I have this in every exam room, so this is for quick reference, uh, and it sort of tells me some of the codes not to use, such as F32.9, which is depression unspecified, that doesn't risk adjust, and that shows poor documentation practices. Also on this, we the key we have, how to he must document or she must document, uh, and a lot of other coding guidelines, so we always want to be 
proper and accurate with our documentation because that's going to determine the coding. But then the codes are here. So you just pick the code, put it in the computer. You don't have to scroll and search. So it's a two-hour process. And basically, I do presentation lectures. Recently, I went up to Ohio. There was 80 physicians on a Saturday morning from seven to nine that want to know risk adjustment. And I think they they mastered risk adjustment. So I've done one-on-one in uh, offices in, in Macon with the physicians in their, their private office. They just want to do that two-hour presentation. Uh, I've done groups. Uh, I've done one-on-ones. Now, when it comes to your recommendation about trying to put a little separation between the physician and the technology that can kind of get in the way and, and be between me and my patient interaction. Obviously, one of the strategies is is having uh, a scribe, uh, one of the care team be in there and be able to take down, I guess they're clicking. They're the one that's with, they're that's with their head into the EMR and clicking on all the things that are coming out through your assessment and interview. And therefore, the physician who is the obviously the leader in that engagement is able to stay intact. Do you find that use of manpower in your own practice, it sounds as though the benefits from the reimbursement side of things would more than outweigh anyone that would say, I don't really have the budget to cover, you know, and having a person in each room when the physician is in there. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. I can see someone saying, well, that's too much SGNA for my practice. I can't really yeah. afford the person that would be able to let me do that. But if I'm getting 16% more. Yeah. See, I can't I afford not to have those scribes yeah. and, and the support team. That That's where the key is at. We've changed from that fee-for-service. That fee-for-service was a CPT RVU relative value unit, which yes. is a total of the physician's time, the practice expense, malpractice expense, multiplied times a conversion uh, amount, a money factor of like $35.80. So that's how we got paid on the RVUs. <laughs> yeah. That's relatively fixed. Now we're paid to work smarter. We don't have to do all those coding requirements like in the CPT, uh, E&M evaluations. So what we do is we take care of the patients. We think in our minds about being cost efficient, a good stewardship of the money. Uh, do they really need that uh, uh, CT? Especially if it's a young person, do they need that radiation exposure? I usually say not. I believe in choosingwisely.org. They have some great stuff. Interesting. But but I won't get off on that. But uh, you've got to minimize. You've got to uh, have some technologic restraint when you practice medicine. Everybody don't need all that. Medication-wise, you give generics. You try to promote healthy lifestyles, get people off medication. See, that reduces healthcare costs. You try to keep them out of the emergency room. In our practice, we have a nutritionist. We work on reducing people's weight. That helps with blood pressure, everything else. So, see, we're saddled now, TW, with making patients better under value-based care. That's what it's about. We got to make them better. We got to engage them. Uh, our biggest enemy is low health literacy. So we got to attack that by educating patients. So I can't be educating a patient if I'm clicking in a bad gum computer. Yes. You know, just to document it for somebody that's never going to read it. Right. In general, that's not going to be read again. So let's spend the time with the patient. But we got to do our risk adjustment with the payers because they're going to be tracking our prospective budgets. 
And if I do a good job, if I make that patient healthier, I keep them out of the hospital, they're on generic drugs, you follow me? There's going to be a savings there based on what that risk adjustment says it should cost. So if I come in way under, they're going to share one of $3 with me. Every time they make three, they'll share one with me. Mm-hmm. And overall, if we do that as a nation, just think about that uh, total budget. We actually can stop that thing from rising and reduce it. We got to age adjusted because you know we got so many people becoming Medicare age every day. We're all getting older, about ten thousand a day. So the healthcare costs are going to rise, but we can uh, make it proportionally not rise as much. Mm-hmm. So. I've been doing this for 40 years. I love what I do. I'm not burnt out. Without some of these tools, I would have a burnout factor because it's just too much of a pain with all the documentation. The biggest thing for us is the quality measures captures. What percent of our patients are we doing a colonoscopy? What percent's getting a mammogram? So I have found that my nurses participating in that really helps me. That's really a nursing function, uh, I believe. We physicians need to be the quarterback. We need to to overview that. We need to manage those processes Mm -hmm. to make sure they get done. I think physicians need to spend their time in complex decision-making or doing procedures. Yes. So... We've just not, I think nurses are the most underappreciated uh, workers in healthcare. Well, it sounds like you've yeah. figured out a, a good way to help in the care of the patient, able to have those outcomes go up because you are able to be more directly involved. And I know that that patient engagement element is a, is a real key, particularly in managing some of those that are going to be uh, average or, or the, the risk adjusted group of coding diseases that they have, all of those patients are going to have a need for higher engagement. You're just showing folks how to document the need and, exactly. and giving them some good ideas about how they can literally find time within the day. Obviously, you only got so many hours, you're trying to see so many patients, particularly in primary care. And to be able to squeeze out more time in that same volume of patients with each patient, that's that's a big deal. I think patients are happier. Uh, nurses can do an annual wellness visit. That's really the key to risk adjustment. That's the key to managing population health mm-hmm. and cost is the annual wellness visit. Insurance companies call it the annual preventative visit. Mm-hmm. But nurses legally now are allowed to do that. So all of our annual wellness visits are done, done by trained nurses, and they do a really enhanced annual wellness visit. They do it by the book. That really takes a big burden off, and Mm -hmm. they get to spend a whole hour with the patient. They bond with that patient. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm sure that's a big deal for those patients. Plus, it gives you a little bit more of a time segment you can work with where you can really drive home some of the values of why you should maybe make a few dietary changes or or continue to work on smoking cessation, whatever you have to work on. Do you know the only time a doctor spends an hour with a patient is when the patient is asleep? (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Real quickly, I know yeah. uh, I know we're running out of time, but yeah. you, we talked briefly a little bit about opportunities for improving the way that when we're in a primary care office, how we approach documentation around a patient that may be comorbid with depression. Can you talk real quickly about your thoughts on that? Because it sounded like there's some opportunities there maybe for colleagues to... Kinda, with the depression? Yes. It's real simple, uh, CW. 
almost every electronic health record has a form in it. It's called a PHQ-9. That stands for Patient Health Questionnaire. That's the one for depression. So if you score 10 points, it goes up to 27 points. But you, you score it and you take the points and then you can actually look directly on the two and see if it's major depressive disorder, moderate, or some other. With yes. the specifier, it's got the actual code on the two. So moderate, that would be F32.1. I don't have to scroll in the Yeah, computer. that took you all of about three seconds. Yeah. And the reason why that is somewhat important, particularly in a primary care office, is so many patients, particularly those dealing with chronic illness like heart disease, for example, or even diabetes or possibly obesity, many of those patients are also comorbid, comorbid with depression, yes. which complicates truly their, their progress yes. and their ability yes. to be compliant. That's why I wanted to mention this, because I know that a little bit over half of the antidepressant and psychotic antipsychotic meds are prescribed first time in primary care. So yes. that means you're seeing them. Um, it sounds like there's opportunity there for you to be able to share that care and decision, what led to the decisions you're making for this patient in a deeper way that helps everybody. And, and I actually do what I term as raft parties, like the old Tupperware <laughs> parties. We do raft parties and we have one on depression that we simplify how primary care, anybody can code the depression and uh, how to document it. It's so easy. Mm. But but when you don't know how to do it, uh, if you don't know how to get to your location here with this bad yeah. traffic in Atlanta, That's right. it's a challenge. That's right. So some of them are confused about how to get there. And the, the, the takeaway that I've gotten here today is not that I need to have my office manager or my back office person get in touch with you to say, know me up on how to do this. It is your colleagues yeah. that, are, that are making the, the patient care choices. The physicians themselves need to understand the concept of this so they can then have their decisions be well-documented as to why they're doing what they're doing and the patient they're actually looking at. And those physicians will be a lot happier. How do I go about having you come by, spend some time with me to get me noted up so I can do this better? I think on your uh, announcement today, uh, we posted an article. Uh, it's called Raffin the Rapids of Risk-Adjusted <laughs> Reimbursement. Uh, we posted that. It has my contact information on it, but... You know, I'm located in uh, the Sweet Onion City of Idalia. I love them. I, I do, too. Uh, so, you know, we'll be glad to uh, help anyone. I have other people that assist me. I have people that are experts in macromips. Uh, Lisa McFan, uh, she is just the best I've met that, that knows macro. Uh, so we have a company, Successful Health and Wellness Solutions. Uh, we're on the Internet, but... Everything's referenced on the article okay. that uh, was sent out in the announcement today. Dr. Ronnie Smith, internist with Vidalia Medical Associates, and as we've been talking about, clearly an expert as it relates to uh, value-based reimbursement and, and documenting uh, the, the care and the reasons why you're making the choices that you're making. So I really appreciate you coming in. I think you made it really pretty clear for folks who are like me, kind of noobish around these yeah. concepts. I, I've heard of them, know they're out there, know they can affect things, yeah. but still trying to kind of grok with how it works. And I think you're, you're on the right track with making it very simple 
I'm giving some tools that even if I do have an EMR that that might help me make my workflow go a little better as I try to implement this yeah. to the benefit of my patients and our practice. Make sure you get by their website, uh, check out mag.org and check out all the articles that they're putting out there, including uh, one that goes, you can see the tool that they're making available to you if you get engaged with them. If you're not done so already in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo. It'll take you to the iTunes store where Top Docs Radio Show's podcast lives. You can subscribe to us, and that way each week you get guests like this downloaded straight to your device so you can check it out when it's convenient for you. Clearly, this is important to you and your peers, so we hope you turn around and maybe put this out on your social media. Click it out on LinkedIn and and Facebook and other places. You might be just helping somebody out that means something to you. So we'll say thanks in advance to everybody who does. We really appreciate our partners in the Medical Association of Georgia, gotten to meet some really great individuals who've shared some terrific information here on the show. So it's been a lot of fun uh, working with those folks. And Dr. Smith, it was a treat having a chance to sit down with you today. It was a pleasure, CW. Everybody out there who made us a part of your day, we really want to say thank you very much. We appreciate your time and respect your use of it here. We'll talk to you soon. 